It's been such a blessing to be here uh, with you again. Uh, I was here last year, and uh, I have to say it was one of the best conferences um, I've been to, (laughs) not because I was speaking at it, but what I mean is what I received from the conference was very, very special. And I feel the same this way uh, this year. And uh, it's been a different conference, of course. The restrictions last year didn't restrict the Lord, praise Him. Um, And it's been different this year, but it's been um, special as well. And we look to God tonight to see what he's going to do. Let's pray. Can we pray? And as I asked you last evening, would you pray that the Lord would come to you and come to speak to you? And Trevor, at the very beginning, um, has been repeated over again and again, said this is personal. And that's what we want. We want you to be hungry for God and for God to speak to you and for a revelation to your heart. So, Father, we come to you. In that name that is above every name, Lord Jesus Christ. Far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has been given as head to the church, the body. And we just want to lift up the name of Jesus. And we want to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus Christ is is Lord, that there is none other beside him. He is the root uh, of David. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the beginning and the end. He is the altogether lovely one. And we want to worship him. And we just pray now for the Holy Spirit, his power and his ministry. And we do ask for those angelic hosts. Lord, we're claiming that word, that they will come and they will minister. And that the tractors will be doing their job. And I'll not be exhausted tonight. Because Lord you will do the work. That you will do the work. And your glory will come among us. And Lord that we'll really encounter you this evening. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want you to turn to Romans 8. If you don't know the subject of the, the conference. It's overcoming adversity. And uh, last evening, I spoke on facing facts. And one of the major facts was the inevitability and our need to face the inevitability of suffering in this world. And we addressed um, a few theological lies that sometimes we've heard and certain misconceptions that we have ourselves, um, things in our perspective that need change. But tonight, I really want to concentrate on my heading is what you need to know, what you need to know. And um, it's all from Romans chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to read it because initially I want to go through it with you um, as I teach verse by verse. It's quite a long passage, so we'll not read it initially, but we'll look at it verse by verse. But if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you will know that essentially what the, 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 the author Paul is doing for us is he is teaching the truths of the gospel of grace. And he's actually teaching it to a church in Rome who hadn't had personal instruction from him. They had not yet met the Apostle Paul. And he's teaching them about this wonderful message of God's grace. And grace has often been defined as unmerited favor. But there's more to grace than that. Grace is a divine empowerment to enable us to do what we cannot do. And we cannot get to God. We cannot get to God. It is religion that teaches us 
ways and means and efforts and mechanisms to climb a ladder to God when in fact the true message of the gospel is God has put a ladder down on earth just like Jacob saw from heaven a ladder coming from heaven to earth and he has come down to us. Um, Paul had never been in Rome up to this point but he is writing to them and he says that he hopes to visit them soon. And yet we know from chapter 16 at the very end of the book that he knew some Christians here. And it's possible that some of the Jews in the church in Rome, it was a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, that some of the Jews actually were converted on the day of Pentecost and may have been known uh, to Paul. But certainly the Christians in the church in Rome, and indeed in the early church in general, were people on the move. And there were at least two reasons for that. One of them was work. People traveled wherever the work was. But the prime reason probably for Christians being on the move was persecution. And we know that God used this to force the message of the gospel across the empire and the known world um, by the suffering of the believers. Again, there we're seeing another purpose. God isn't causing the believers to suffer uh, as a, the prime source, but he is using that suffering. And as someone quoted already, Paul said, even when he was in prison, that the things that have happened to me have fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. And so Romans is a classic book, isn't it? it, it it's marvelous. It's probably, I'd say, the most influential book in the New Testament. Augustine, the great saint of old, was converted through um, hearing the words of uh, Romans 13, verse 13 and 14, I read it to you. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And Augustine, before his conversion, was, was burned up with lust, the lust of the flesh. He's very graphic in his testimony about the things that bound him the vices, and the habits. This was the, pa the passage of Scripture that liberated him and brought him to Jesus around AD, 30, uh, sorry, AD uh, 380. And then the Protestant Reformation was also spurred on when Martin Luther, that German reformer, finally understood how we can be made right with God. As found in chapter 1, verse 17, a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, the just or the righteous shall live by their faith. That's how we get right with God. It's not by works that we have done. And there in the year 1517, uh, the Protestant reformer Luther had this wonderful revelation that we cannot earn favor with God by the works that we do, even though they might be good works. But it is through grace that we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen. And then John Wesley, the great revivalist, the founder of Methodism, received assurance of his salvation through hearing the reading of Luther's commentary, the preface to his commentary in the book of Romans, as he was met with the Moravian church in their little house church on Aldergate Street, London, 1738 was the year. And again, it was the understanding of the book of Romans that caused John Wesley to say, my heart was strangely warmed. He understood the grace of God. 
John Calvin, the reformer, wrote, When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. When you understand Romans, you understand what the Bible is all about. And can I add to Calvin to say, you actually begin to understand how to overcome adversity as well. And when I was considering over the last number of weeks what I would bring to you in teaching, the first place my heart went, which was not obvious, I would have to say, in a a mental sense, many other passages of Scripture to do with adversity, but where my, my heart went was Romans 8. That there's something key in Romans 8 of how to overcome adversity, things that we need to know. And you see, the book of Romans was not just written to explain the gospel. I believe it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It was written to tell how this is a gospel worthy of taking to the whole world. Even to the point of dying for it. Do we believe that? Paul believed it. And he did visit Rome. But not as he expected He visited as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And according to tradition, Paul was martyred outside Rome on the Ostian Way during Nero's reign around AD 54 to 68. But he knew how to overcome adversity. That's what we're going to find out here in chapter 8. Now we've talked last night about that great philosophical and theological question of suffering, the dilemma of why. And we, I think we're right in saying that even if we did know the specific reasons why you are suffering the way you are, it wouldn't reduce our pain. It wouldn't make it any easier. That being said, I don't want you to misunderstand in thinking that uh, knowledge doesn't help us at all. And we might not get our specific answers to our specific problems, but there are certain things that we can know that make it easier to endure and overcome adversity. And chapter 8, I believe, is what teaches us what we need to know. Okay, you ready? How do we overcome adversity? Here's what we need to know. Now, follow through with me, and you might want to take some notes. And, of course, last night's recording, all the recordings are available. Uh, If you want to catch up on that, and you can listen to this afterwards, if you can't take the notes. But I want you to follow with me as we go through this passage of Scripture. The first thing that you need to know to overcome adversity is knowing what we have in Christ. Do you know what you have in Christ? Look at verse 1 of Romans 8 through to verse 4. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. I could stop there and we could just hang out on that verse. The first part of one verse. Do you know what it means? There's no judgment anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So if you're sitting here tonight and you're under the accusation of Satan, the accuser of the brothers and sisters, you can be sure that that is not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you've confessed your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So the easy way to to get rid of the condemnation of the enemy is confess your sins. And if you're still feeling condemned, guess who it is? It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the accuser, and you need to command him to leave you, because there is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. And there's some people who are actually suffering from spirits of accusation and condemnation. Sins that you have committed in the past, um, skeletons in the closet, 
Things that God has forgiven you for that are completely under the blood, but the devil is still hammering you in the head for. And you need to be set free tonight from condemnation. Because there is no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the reason why, verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. (laughs) And the law of sin and death actually is an allusion not to the propensity to sin within our fallen sinful flesh. It's actually a wink and a nod, I believe, to the law of Moses. That, that the law of Moses is perfect. It is holy. But we've got a problem. We're not perfect and holy. And so what the law of Moses does for us is it magnifies our sin. It actually aggravates our sin. It makes us more sinful. Paul says, I wouldn't have had sin if it wasn't for the law. But we're not under that law. In Christ, we're under the law of life in the spirit. Which has set us free from the law of sin and death because of Christ. I wonder you set free. You know, the reason why you could be under condemnation is because you're living by laws, not by love. Now let that sink in for a moment. Let's read on. Verse 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be an offering for sin. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What's that saying? The law was weak. It's perfect and holy. It came from God. There's nothing deficient in the law itself. But Paul tells us how it was weak. It was weak toward us in the sense that our flesh was weak to keep it. We can't do it. That's why if anybody thinks that the Ten Commandments were given so as we could have a ten-rung ladder to heaven, you have been deceived. The law of God was given so that we would know we haven't got what it takes. And that we need a Savior. And it took God... I say this reverently, hundreds of years to try and get that into his own people's head through law. That's what that exercise was all about. He was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. And Jesus came in perfect human flesh. He fulfilled the law. He's the only person who could keep the law, and he kept it for us. Everything he did, everything he did on this earth, do you know this? We did in him. Do you understand? When he faced the tempter in the garden, when he was in Gethsemane and he submitted his human will to God the Father, when he was on the cross, when he was buried, when he rose again, when he ascended, he not only did it for us, he did it as us. He didn't just die for you, he died as you. So that the requirements of the law, the wages of sin is? You read the law of Moses. I'm reading the moment through Leviticus and it's all about the pain of death for sin and so on like that. And sacrifices and so on. He took it all for our sin. He died our death on the cross. And he exhausted all the condemnation for the broken law on himself. Why? So that we could live life in the spirit and be free from the law. Praise him. 
And look at this. Do we read verse 4? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so I'm asking you, I'm telling you this, okay. Here's what you need to know. You need to know what you have in Christ. And the first thing you have in Christ, according to these first four verses, is life in the Spirit. Do you have life in the Spirit? Not every Christian is living life in the Spirit. And I want to tell you something as well. And I'll do this with each point I'm going through. about four major points. And they're all accessed, accessed by a certain spiritual virtue. And what you need to know of what you have in Christ is accessed by faith. The just shall live by faith. Grace is the hand of God that offers us everything as a free gift in Christ. But faith is our hand that receives it from God. Are you living life in the spirit or are you under law? If you're under law, that's why you're under condemnation. And you Christians are great at making rules. They are. I'm not saying there aren't principles. I'm not saying there aren't standards in Holy Scripture. Of course there are. But let's not make laws for our back anymore when we're set free by the law of the Spirit of of life in Christ Jesus. Setting us free. Wherever the Spirit of the law is, there is liberty, freedom. But see, this affects our minds. If you're living life in the Spirit, it affects your minds. Look at verse 5 through 9. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. If you're living according to law and rules, your mind will be fleshly. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And what Paul is saying is, right, Jesus died so that you might not be under the law, but you should be in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. And if you're in the Spirit, your head needs to be in the Spirit. But if your head is in law, you will be condemned and that will bring forth death. Do you know what the curse of the law is? death and that's why some christians are downright miserable because they're living their life under law even a set of commandments have made up themselves and they're crushed by it it brings death and so we need repentance and we often think of repentance as changing your ways that's an application and an outworking but repentance in its essence metanoia in the greek is a change of mind It's a transformed mind to think differently. So this is an eternal understanding. Okay, are you with me? What we need to know is what we have in Christ. First of all, life in the Spirit, we access that by faith, and it gives us an eternal understanding of who we are and what we have in Jesus. It's exactly what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, 1 to 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Where's your head at? Where's your head at? Do you know the battle for our souls is the battle for the mind? 
The mind is the battlefield that the enemy assaults us on first. And we need to know what we have in Jesus, who we are in Jesus. We need to understand what life in the Spirit is in order to live it. Here's the second thing of knowing what we have in Christ, resurrection. (laughs) Brian touched on this earlier. Uh, Verse 11, we're just going verse by verse here. Verse 11, or verse 10, beg your pardon. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin... The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Now, if who who we are in Christ, life in the Spirit, is an eternal understanding. Resurrection is an eternal perspective of our lives. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen through 19. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are of all men most miserable, the old translation says. This is an eternal perspective. We are going to rise again. And if you want to overcome adversity, you need to know what you have in Christ. You have life in the Spirit, which is an eternal understanding, and you have resurrection life, which is an eternal perspective. And can I tell you, that is why, that is why the early martyrs went to their death Because they believed it was not the end. And they believed they'd be resurrected. And and I don't want to get into any controversial ground here or anything like that. But God is eternal. We are in time. And the eternal realm is another dimension. And it's not subject to time. And I believe there's a sense in which though the body lies in the grave. And the spirit goes to be with God who gave it. That for those who die in Christ. For them in an eternal sphere. One moment they're dead and the next moment they're resurrected. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not talking about soul sleep or any false doctrines. What I'm talking about is in in an eternal dimension there's no time span. In God we live and move and have our being. Now that's hard to all work out. I don't think you can work it out. But all I'm saying is these men and these women were going to be fed to lions. To be hung, drawn and quartered. To be burned at the stake. To be beheaded. Because they knew in a moment absent from the body present with the Lord. And they'd have their resurrection bodies before they even realized that they were dead. Now we don't. We don't think in those terms around resurrection life. I believe what Paul's hinting at is we already have that resurrection life in our mortal bodies. But I think he is looking to the resurrection day when this mortal will give way to immortality. We believe in the resurrection of the body. I hope we do. So knowing what we have in Christ, we have life in the spirit, that's Eternal understanding. We have resurrection. That's eternal perspective. We have inheritance as sons. That's eternal glory. Look at these verses. Verse 14. 
through to 17. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Anybody living in fear here? Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Eternal glory. No slavery. We're not slaves. We're not orphans. There's no fear for perfect love casts out fear. We have the fatherhood of God that we spoke about last year. We are sons and daughters. We are heirs with God. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That means what's ever in the will for Jesus is in the will for us. Whatever's coming to him and his destiny is coming to us. Yes. But that also means we inherit suffering. And then the glory. And some people want to switch that around to glory now and no suffering at any time. Do you know emperors in Rome adopted heirs to enjoy their inheritance? They actually adopted children so they could enjoy their inheritance. And that's what God does for us, as Paul's writing to these Romans. God adopts us so we can enjoy everything that Jesus has. And that's my first point, knowing what we have in Christ. What is it? Life in the Spirit. That's our eternal understanding in our minds and our hearts. Resurrection. That's an eternal perspective. Death is not the end. And inheritance of sons and daughters. Eternal glory. And that's all accessed by faith. You've got to believe it. That will cause you to overcome in suffering what you believe. What do you believe? Neil Anderson said it. What you do does not determine who you are. Who you are determines what you do. Who you are determines how you behave. It's not law. How you behave determines whether you're a Christian or whether you're holy. It's the opposite of knowing who you are and what you have as a child of God. Here's the second thing. Knowing what is ahead in Christ. And if knowing who you are in Christ is accessed by faith, knowing what is ahead in Christ is accessed by hope. Okay? Now let me explain it to you like this. Faith is like the eye that lets us see the promised land that's up ahead. That's faith. The vision that lets us see what God has promised. But hope is like the bridge to take faith there. Have you got that? Hope is the bridge that we can walk across to get to that destination of the promise. And that's what we find here. What's ahead in Christ? Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Here's what's ahead, guys. Incomparable glory. Incomparable glory. Not worthy to be compared with our sufferings. I don't know what your sufferings are like. There's a legend about uh, a, a prisoner who was falsely imprisoned and condemned. And when it was discovered that he was innocent, the king of that land got his chains and weighed them 
and doled out to him in weight in gold the weight of his chains. But it's better than that in Christ, what's ahead of us. We get more, incomparably. Not worthy to be compared. So whatever you're going through, you know how how you can overcome realizing what's ahead. This is a cakewalk in comparison to the glory that you're going to accrue through this suffering. And I'm not in any sense trying to demean suffering. But knowing what is ahead is going to cause you to overcome. But secondly, there's incomparable glory ahead of us, but creation anticipates our glory. That's what it. Creation anticipates our glory. Do you know who you are? Look at verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. And that can mean a whole lot of things. But I just want to say here tonight, global warming is not going to destroy the planet. And the church has bought into a lot of stuff that's philosophy that is not of God. Now, mark what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't be stewards. Good stewards of our environment, of creation, I think that's actually something that's mandated to us. But listen, the creation is not groaning because of the ozone layer. The creation is groaning because it wants to be redeemed. And it wants to see the sons and the daughters of God coming forth in glory when Jesus returns. And I wish the church would spend more time talking about that than than all your recycling. And I'm not against that. Creation actually anticipates our glory. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? The creation is waiting for you to walk into your identity. And there's something more. Our bodies anticipate our glory. So there's incomparable glory that's ahead of us in Christ. The whole creation is anticipating it. And our own bodies. Look at verse 23. Not only so creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Some of you even groan outwardly, don't you? Has anybody's body grown? Uh, make noises they shouldn't? Well, that's your body. I, I know. And I know there's healing, praise God. And people were healed last night, I believe. And people be touched tonight but you know even these are signs and wonders to tell us the body's speaking to us and saying there's a new body coming there's glory coming and it's accessed what did i say what what knowing what is ahead in christ how is it accessed by hope who we are in christ what we have in christ is accessed by faith But what's ahead in Christ is accessed by hope. Look at verse 24 through 25. For in this hope, see it? In this hope of glory we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. (laughs) This was ended out earlier by Brian. You know, Hebrews, it's all about faith, I know. It's all about the heroes of faith. But it says there, they, in, they obtained the promise 
Through what? Faith and patience. And that comes from hope. But let's be really practical. How does this outwork in our lives? How do we get this bridge of hope that faith can march over to what's ahead of us in Christ? Well, it very often happens via the Spirit's intercessions in prayer in us. Look at verse 26 and 27. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Isn't that marvelous? That this cyclical operation of prayer is that God puts the groanings in us by his spirit who searches our spirits to know what we need and he's he's praying in us to get his will through the groanings of intercession and that's what gives us hope that builds up hope in us so that we can walk across the bridge in faith and we can see what's ahead of us in the glory wow can I tell you if you didn't already know that the enemy wants to kill your hope And I know that God was working through the pandemic. I'm not saying he caused it, but he was certainly working through it big time. But the devil was working through it as well. And he was wanting to kill our hope. He was wanting to spread an epidemic of fear and disappointment so that our hope can be robbed. There's so much more that we need to learn on hope. You know, hope is one of the least preached about virtues in the church. But hope is how we access what's ahead of us in Christ. This glory. Faith is how we access what we have in Christ. Here's the third thing. How to overcome adversity. We need to know what God has purposed in Christ for us. Here it is then. Verse 28 through 30. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. doesn't say all things are good. But it says even the bad. He works for our good. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew. Knew aforetime ahead of time with his foreknowledge. His omniscient pre-knowledge. Those who God saw before time. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Do you know what God has purposed in Christ for you? He has a plan. And he looked down the ages of time before anything was created and he saw you. He saw you responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he predestined you to have everything that Jesus has. And to be eventually not only justified, but totally glorified in the presence of God. And remember, he's in eternity. And we, we pull our hair out about this predestination thing. I picked up my son last night from a conference nearby. He was out with a lot of young people. And him and his mate were in the back seat and they were talking about everything. And they said they were in another dorm the other night. This happened to my daughter as well a few years ago in another camp. And he said, Dad... They were talking about predestination. These are 16-year-old lads. Talking about predestination. I just went, oh, for dear sake. That's what I, oh, for goodness sake. He says, what's wrong? What's wrong? 
I says, what do you need to know about that right now at 16 years of age, predestination? And I believe in it, I said to him, and I'll explain it to you sometime. But, but why is it people are obsessed with these concepts and they miss the big picture? What is the big picture? Whatever you believe about predestination, the Lord bless you. But you know what it ultimately is? It's to have the same destination as God's Son. To be like Christ one day. However that works. That's the purpose God has. Even in our suffering. That we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Or to put it another way. He has a plan. Now. If what we have in Christ is accessed by what? Stay with me here. I see the Pavlovas working against me. Faith. Faith. What we have in Christ is accessed by faith. What's ahead of us in Christ is accessed by? What do you think the third one might be? Faith, hope, and love. Okay. What God has purposed in Christ for us is accessed by love. What does verse 28 says? Say, in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But it is love. Those that love him. Keep my word, Jesus said. Knowing what God has purposed in Christ is accessed by love. And then there's another thing. This is my final point. Accessed by love. Love's the greatest of the three. So it would figure that there was two of these, wouldn't it? Fourthly, knowing our security in Christ will cause you to overcome. You need to know your security in Christ. And it's also accessed by love. (laughs) Here it is, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you know that God is for you, not against you? I don't care whether you're a prostitute, a homosexual, whatever you're into, transgender, thief, robber. I don't know what you're into, what you've done, what's in your past. You can be a murderer or you could be a good living Christian type person that goes to church. You need to know God is for you in Christ. God loves you. God has a plan for you and you can be secure in Christ if you come to Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole Godhead is for us. If you look at verse 31, 32, it tells us the Father is for us. In verse 34, it tells us the Son is for us. And we read verse 26 and 27 about the intercession of the Spirit. The Spirit is for us. The whole triune Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is behind you and for you. He's rooting for you. He wants you to succeed even in the midst Of adversity. God is for us. Something else. God provides for us. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him. Graciously give us all things. I mean that statement. Along with him. (laughs) I mean what do you need? Jesus is enough. But what he's saying is. Look if you can get it. That God gave Jesus for you and God gave Jesus as you and God gave Jesus to you how can you not believe that he'll give you everything that you need not everything you want now that's a different message that one sometimes he gives us what we want when it's what we need that's when we need to walk in the spirit not fulfilling the lusts the greed of the flesh 
But he gives us everything we need. Everything he deems we need. So, knowing our security in Christ, we access it by love that God is for us. That God provides for us. And then thirdly, God has justified us. Verse 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. What did he start off with in verse 1? There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The only one who would have a right to condemn us doesn't condemn us. And that's Jesus Christ. No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Not only is the Spirit interceding for us, but the Son is interceding for us. And God has justified us. Just as if I never sinned. Wow. Now I know this is maybe old hat for some of you. But if it's old hat, it, you need to hear it again. Because it's not fresh with you then. If you've lost the thrill of the gospel of grace, you need to awaken to it. You know why? Because it will be that pri- primarily that will get you through adversity. Amen. Knowing what you have in Christ. Knowing what's ahead of you in Christ knowing what is purposed in Christ, and knowing how secure you are in Christ, that you're justified, that means that your sins will never be remembered again. They're cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. Far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. I'd ought to set someone free tonight. And then finally, God has loved us inseparably. You need to know your security in Christ. God has loved us inseparably. Look at these verse, the verse 15, sorry, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? God has loved us inseparably. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Now, I'm not getting into the whole area of what you believe about eternal security and all that kind of stuff. Um, Bill Johnson was once asked a question, I like this, do you believe in eternal security? And he, boy, what a wise answer. He came back and he says, well, I don't believe in eternal insecurity. <laughs> and I don't believe in that either. We can be secure in the love of God. Knowing the security in Christ that we have. And Paul ends actually where I began last evening facing facts. And he says in verse 36, suffering is inevitable. He quotes the Psalms as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Suffering is inevitable. But praise God Overcoming is possible. Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Suffering is inevitable. Overcoming is possible because we have a confidence that is irrepressible. Verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our 
Lord. It's only through love. Listen, the only thing that will sustain you through suffering is first love. The love of God. And as we approach the end of the age, the only thing that will cause you to endure is the love of God. That's why Jude says, and his little epistle is about the apostasy that will happen at the end of the age. At the very end, verse 21, what does he say? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Paul says in Ephesians that we need to be rooted and grounded in love. Our roots need to be deep down in the love of God, knowing our security in Christ. A love that, it, that, that, that cannot be severed. So if you, are you getting this tonight? How to overcome adversity from Romans chapter 8, what you need to know. Knowing what we have in Christ that is accessed by faith, life in the Spirit, and eternal understanding. Resurrection and eternal perspective. Inheritance of sons, eternal glory. But not only knowing what we have in Christ, knowing what's ahead in Christ, which is accessed by hope, incomparable glory. Creation anticipates our glory. Our own bodies anticipate the glory. And then knowing what God purposed in Christ for those who love him. It's accessed by love. Knowing he's got a plan, even in the mess that you can't trace right now. His hand has got a plan. And knowing our security in Christ, God is for us. God provides for us. God has justified us. And God has loved us inseparably. And though suffering is inevitable and unavoidable, overcoming is possible because our confidence is irrepressible. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know what I'm going to tell you? Maybe you think we're real <laughs> prophets of doom and misery messengers talking about suffering and all the rest this weekend. But you know what I'm going to tell you? I've read a fair bit from the persecuted church currently. And incidentally, Brian quoted some statistics this morning. I think it was this morning. And another statistic is, did you know in the 20th century, there were more martyrs in the 20th century than all the other centuries put together? Did you know that? It's incredible. But you know something about the persecuted church in the leg of Iran, North Korea, Read Open Doors magazines. Do you know what? I encounter, when I read their testimonies and hear their stories, irrepressible joy. They're not walking around with big long faces, crying, woe is me, in sackcloth and ashes. They are rejoicing in the Lord. Why? Because they know what they have in Christ. They know the glory that's ahead. They know the purpose and the plan. And they know the security they have in Christ. And that's the only thing that will get you through. In 1952, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick, she stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island. And she was determined to, to swim to the shore of California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel, both ways. But the weather was very foggy that day and chilly, and she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 full hours, and then she begged to be taken out of the water along the way. And her mother was in the boat 
alongside. And the mother told her that she was so close to the shore that she could make it. But she just couldn't see the shore. And finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and she was pulled out of the water. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that the shore was less than half a mile away. And at the news conference the next day, this is what she said. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. All I could see was the fog. You see in the fog. We all see the fog from time to time. Especially in the valleys. The whole book of Revelation, Brian has preached on it. Lionheart he is. He preached on it and he, well, there might be more coming, I don't know. But you know what, if I could summarize that book, you know what it's about? These suffering Christians, persecuted Christians, and God's saying, look up. Look up to what I'm doing. I'm on my throne. Look to what I'm going to do, not just now, but what I'm doing in the future. Look up. We need to look up. We need to see the shore to get through our adversity. A few years ago, my two grandfathers died in a space of 20 months. Both of them believers around 2005 through to 2007. And as often as the case when someone near to us dies, you, you start to think about heaven a little bit more than usual. And I found myself lying in bed one night thinking of what must heaven be like when there's a loved one there. <laughs> you know, you feel you have something there and What's it like for them? And in a flash of inspiration, I felt I should take a series um, on heaven. And it came to the, the funeral of my second grandfather that died. And the hymn, the last hymn, uh, or maybe it was the first hymn that was sung, was Sing the Wondrous Love of Jesus. Sing His Mercy and His Grace. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We all see Jesus. We'll sing, shout to victory. But there's one line in the third verse that confirmed the reason why I would preach the series on heaven. I said, just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. And I called the series Glimpses of Glory. Listen. If there were no sickness, there'd be no healing. Think about that. If there were no sickness, there'd be no healing. If there was no blockage, there would be no breakthrough. If there's no cross, there's no crown. And Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the goal. He is the heaven of heavens for me. Let's pray. Now we've been talking a lot about suffering. Rightly so. And we're trying to, by the Spirit's uh, leading, redress and imbalance. And we believe the Lord is preparing for days ahead that won't be easy. But, you know, don't take your eyes off Jesus for one second. Amen. 
don't get your eyes on the suffering and why we need to prepare people and our young people for what's ahead. And we need to be real. We need to face facts, as I've taught. We need to keep our focus on Christ and rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, Paul said. In prison, that was, by the way, he was teaching that stuff. Rejoice, whatever's going on, rejoice, 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 rejoice. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. You know? Do you need to get your eyes heavenward again? Do you need to get your head in the clouds again in the right way? Do you need to get your emotions tuned to heaven's harp? Not the earth's funeral dirge on the media day in, day out. So maybe there needs to be some repentance for you. Change of mind, change of habits, change of focus, change of perspective. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what you have? Do you know what's yours? Do you know how secure you are? Huh? Do you know how secure you are? Jesus said, no one can pluck you out of my hand or my Father's hand. And we're not talking about what happens when people turn their back on Jesus and walk away and deny their faith and all the rest. It's a whole other subject that we're not getting into. I'm saying if you're a child of God, and you love Jesus and you're following Jesus, you don't need to fear any insecurity. His love is as strong as death. And you know, many Christians have been saved for years and they've, I think they've never been baptized in the Father's love, the love of God, the unconditional love of God. What do you need here tonight? If he gave his son for you, how not, will he not freely give you all things with him? Ask him for what you need tonight, just in prayer, just where you're seated. Ask him in faith and in hope and in your love for him. Ask him for what you need, what you desperately need tonight in your adversity. Let's take a moment in the presence of God. But just in this moment, before the word of the Lord, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, his unction on this gathering. How will you apply this word in faith, hope, and love to your heart, to your life, to your circumstances, to your future? How will you apply it? Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And as one African once said, it was asked where heaven was And he said, wherever Jesus is, wherever Jesus is, yeah? Jesus is here. But you know, it's not about going to heaven and asking Moses those questions. That's not about heaven. It's not about walking streets of gold and counting the jewels and the pearly gates. It's all about Jesus, folks. All about Jesus. Lamb slain in the midst of the throne. We will worship him for It's all about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. Our suffering's about Jesus. Our enduring's about Jesus. Any glory that rests upon us is about Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. So get our eyes on you. And I pray for the folk that really are in the valley of the shadow right now. They're in adversity. Whether it's world the world's attack whether it's the flesh their own flesh or whether it's the devil himself 
I pray whatever ministry they need, that right now they will know what they need to know about what Romans 8 says is theirs. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit and minister. Come Holy Spirit. Father, send the Spirit for Jesus' sake. Father, send the Spirit for Jesus' sake. Father, send those angels to minister seat to seat, to do your bidding, to minister to those who inherit, who inherit salvation. Come and do what you alone can do in this gathering. Would you stand with me for a moment? Would you stand with me? And I'm not telling you what to do, but just you feel free to respond in whatever way you see fit. Some people like to put their hands out. Some people like to kneel. Some pe- whatever you, we're not prescribing, you do what you need to do. But in an attitude of reception, Jesus. say, Lord, Lord, you give me Jesus. You'll give me everything else I need. Amen. You'll give me everything else I need to get through because he's enough and everything comes with him. Yes. So I receive all that I need, all the grace. It's all about grace, folks which means empowering energy and strength that you can't have in the natural. I receive that grace right now. (laughs) Thank you, Lord Jesus. Just let that anointing rest on you. The anointing breaks the yoke of bondage on some people here right now. Yes, I break the yoke of bondage in Jesus' name. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has set people free from the law of death. And I rebuke the law, the spirit of the law of death, that's at work in people here tonight. And I command you to go. The spirit of law and legalism, the curse of the law is broken in Jesus Christ through the blood of the Lamb. And I command every spirit of legalism and death to leave right now. In Jesus' name, go. And do not return in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And Lord, would you come in glory and power on people and rest on them now. And even now they can have compensation. Even now you don't, sometimes you don't have to wait to the future. You don't have to wait to the future. Jesus said the person that gives up houses and money and land and family for me in this life will be compensated. Even in this life, you will see compensation for the scars and the wounds and the suffering. Some of you need compensation now. And Jesus is going to give you it now. In this life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You are Lord. You are our deliverer. You are our stronghold. Over every other stronghold. You are our high tower. The righteous run in and they are safe. They are safe. Jesus, the Lord and Christ, we declare your name. We declare your glory. We declare your power that Jesus is stronger than Satan. And Satan to Jesus must bow. The liar and the condemner and the accuser is, is overcome. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We give glory, glory to him. Have your way, Lord Jesus. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.